Card presents Back Issue Bloodpath with your hosts, Andrew Young and Petula Neal. We come here to honor the passing of a great comic creator whose hand touched the Marvel Universe for many decades and is responsible for making Spider-Man pretty on Back Issue Bloodbath. I'm Andrew Young. I'm Petula Neal. Earlier this year, John Romita Sr. passed away. He had lived a full and plentiful life, though. You know, he was born on January 24th, 1930. He thankfully had many years on this planet. And during those years gave us a lot to remember. The man started working in comics and his first published work was in 1949. And he still had things published all the way into the 2000s, even if they were just posters or covers or a few pages in uh, a couple of anniversary issues. So the man has quite a legacy. And uh, it all started for him back in 1949, he uh, was brought on to do a ghost artist job on Timely Comics. He did some issues for somebody else there. And uh, Timely, of course, was the uh, the precursor to Marvel. That's what Marvel was all the way back then. It's during that time that he met Stan Lee. And in 1951, he started drawing regularly for Timely had just changed their name to Atlas at this point. And he drew war comics, he drew horror comics, he drew romance comics. But probably the thing that stands out from that time period was his first ever foray into superheroes and the short-lived revival of Captain America. It's the 50s. World War II is in the rear view. They want to bring back Captain America. So what do they do? Captain America, commie smasher. (laughs) He faced enemies associated with the Soviet Union. But the thing that really I feel didn't catch people, like there was that element, but there was also the fact that it's like Steve Rogers, you know, he's no longer in a war, right? So what does he do for a day job? He's a school teacher and Bucky's one of his students. To me, that doesn't scream Captain America. The series was canceled just after three issues and Romita really sees it as the political climate change of the time, you know. It wasn't very much, during the Korean War, it wasn't a very rah-rah kind of mentality. He almost, he actually is quoted as saying, back then, Captain America was a dirty word. Yeah. Well, and he had, uh, under job experience, you know, he was in the army. Yeah, he was a soldier. And then used his art skills to be able to keep working while he was in the army. But even that, like, whole school teacher bit, it's very... It's very Saving Private Ryan, actually. It's just he's ahead of his time. Oh, yeah. Well, he didn't come up with the school teacher <laughs> yeah. idea. That was Stan was like, it'll be a school teacher. It'll yeah, be great. that is great. It's a great <laughs> idea. It ended up being a pretty good movie. <laughs> oh, no. But what, what's hilarious, though, is that that period of Captain America was erased when they retconned it that Cap had been frozen in the ice since the end of World War II and that Bucky had died during World War II and everything like that. And years after that, they decided to make the 50 stuff canon by having it not be Steve Rogers, that it was someone impersonating Steve Rogers as Captain America. And he is still in comics to this day because he kind of went a little insane 
and now is known as 50s cap and sometimes steve has to take him down because he's usually leading very right-wing militia type groups that believes that america needs to have a strong firm hand and that sort of stuff uh, during brubaker's run there was uh some stand-up stories when bucky barnes became cap he had to take on the cap of the 50s so it was sort of like this whole Oh, this guy has the exact same face as Steve. Steve's dead. So I got to deal with the fact that Steve's dead while I'm fighting a guy and punching, basically punching a guy who looks just like Steve in the face. So, so like bad Santa, but not. <laughs> yeah. So even though this wasn't, this was a failure, this three issue thing, it's actually given a lot to the minutia of Marvel comics over the decades. And so at least something good came out of it. We got a cool villain out of it absolutely now the other thing during this time you know a lot of people think that uh, the first marvel comic starring a black character was black panther technically that's true because this was atlas comics it hadn't become marvel comics yet romita was the primary artist on the first series with a black star waku prince of the bantu which took place in jungle tales and primary like primarily actually the entire stories took place in africa and it was probably the only book at its time that featured no white people, except in maybe small appearances as big game hunters and stuff like that. That's like when you look back at it now, again, the comic does not hold up. It is not mm -hmm. like, oh, this is such a great comic because there are a lot of people that think, oh, Black Panther was the first time they did this. But if you actually go back and look at the storylines in Waku, Prince of the Bantu, some of the ideas do pop up in the Black Panther comics. Very much like the first draft era. I mean, in some interviews, he talked about how he wished he was around even earlier, like at the beginning of things. But he pretty much was in the, okay, we're going to try this. We might throw this out. We'll keep that. And then it will end up evolving into something that is part of really the bones of some of our main approaches to storytelling. Right, right. And the thing is, though, is like, again, we're talking about it's the 50s. So we're just talking, we're years away from the Marvel Universe. It's not that long, but Romita just happens to leave the company during that time and go work exclusively for DC Comics from 1958 to 1965. So he misses out on the birth of the Marvel Universe. That's why he wasn't there when it was Stan and Jack and Steve Ditko, because he was overdoing romance comics. But the thing that I find really interesting is that strictly romance, DC had no interest in him doing anything else but romance comics. And because of that, he got really good at it. Originally, he like would swipe stuff from Terry and the Pirates and uh, movies that he had seen and stuff, but eventually he had created his own style, which for me, it's like when I think about it, Ramita's probably biggest contribution is not the superheroes he did, but the fact that he drew some very striking women in Marvel Comics. And this and is some what... lovely lantern jawed dudes as no, well. No, he definitely, yes, he definitely, well, <laughs> yeah. like that's the thing. He made Peter Parker, like, because originally Steve Ditko drew Peter Parker as this really like gangly kid with Coke bottle glasses, you know, not too sure of himself. Definitely looked like that kid that you wouldn't think anything of. So that of course you'd never think he was Spider-Man. Ramita originally tried to ape that style when he got onto that book and just couldn't do it. He kept trying and it wasn't working. So eventually he just started drawing the way he drew and suddenly Peter Parker was a matinee idol, you know, like, Hot. yeah, he had a barrel chest. He had a good head of hair. He wore that cool brown jacket. So now it's like before Spider-Man was the exciting character, 
but in the artwork now Peter Parker was just as compelling. So that was the big switch. Plus he got his own Betty and Veronica. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, the, the thing I, I find really cool is that he's the first person to draw Mary Jane Watson completely because the first time Mary Jane Watson appeared was in uh, issue 25 of Amazing Spider-Man. Boy, Spider howdy, what an entrance. But, you know, issue 25 of Amazing Spider-Man, her face was covered. So Dicko did not reveal what she looked like. And then, of course, it was uh, issue number 42. When she coming over for dinner for the fix-up for the blind... Not like blind date, but like, yeah, oh, you have to was, entertain my niece or whoever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it was, uh, yeah, she made her, it was, it was issue 42 of Amazing Spider-Man. She walked in, she had the iconic moment, face a tiger, you just hit the jackpot. Yeah, real that, Ed Muir Tully at the wedding moment for yeah. Game of Thrones fans. <laughs> Pull up the veil, ding dong. Yeah, super hottie, yeah. Yeah, ring-a-ding-ding or whatever they would have said back then, I don't know. Ring-a-ding-ding, yeah. Ding, ding, yeah. <laughs> She's really neat. There you go. <laughs> She's the bee's knees. But anyways, he based the look of Mary Jane on Anne Margaret in Bye Bye Birdie. And when I go back and look at the pictures of Anne, because it's been a long, I, I think I was a kid when I watched Bye Bye Birdie once on TV or whatever. When I went back and looked at the pictures of it, I'm like, yeah, no, I can see it. Definitely see it. Did there. you watch anything of the dance? Like the sort of when she's actually singing the song Bye Bye Birdie and it's sort of like almost like a dream sequence kind of situation. No, I, I, just, I just looked at the pictures. Oh, my God. You have to. Because really, <laughs> that's kind of what he gets, even though it's a still medium. Like the way she is like positioning her body, like she's already got the body, but like the way she's moving, it's at both all at once coquettish but also seductive. Mm. And as she's moving forward and back, I think they use like kind of a, a treadmill situation to film that. So it's like, she's walking, but she's moving away from you, but it's very like, come hither. No, you can't, but yeah, but no, but look at this body, yaddy, yaddy. It's all of that. And somehow this man took that and put that in still image and more power to him. Stepping back a little bit before we get into the weeds with Spider-Man, when he came back to Marvel, he originally came as just an inker. And told but he Stan, also does talk a lot about how when he came back, he did appreciate the difference in management and collaboration styles. And yeah, the, no, totally. Yeah, because yeah, again, the Viper Pit. So even back then, DC so messy. Well, DC again, and they they very much the, at the time they put a label on their artists. It's like he's the romance guy. They wouldn't even think to give him a Batman. And Ramita just didn't have the confidence to go and demand it there. So he eventually comes back to Marvel. And he originally is like, I was killing myself on romance comics. Like I was drawing so much a week. I was killing myself. I just want to be an inker. And Stan was like, yeah, no, perfectly. That I'm, I, I'm totally on board with that. That'll be great. And then probably like a week later, he's like, look at this drawing of Daredevil. What would you do in this situation? And so he took out some tracing paper and he showed me. He goes, okay, yeah, you're the new artist on Daredevil. <laughs> and so suddenly he was drawing again. And... During that time, he loved Daredevil. He was such a big fan of Daredevil. And then Stan is like, hey, we're going to do two issues where Spider-Man's guest starring. And he didn't know, but Stan was trying him out for Spider-Man because things had broken down between uh, Lee and Ditko. They were no longer talking. Steve was leaving the book. He needed somebody. And so he tried out Ramita with Daredevil, the two issues. And Automatic was like, yeah, you're going to be the new artist on Spider-Man. And yeah, Ramita didn't want that. 
Ramita was very happy with Daredevil. He didn't want to jump on. And that's why originally, because he thought, well, I'm going to have to do what Dick Coat does. It's established visual style. Also, just I'm just thinking as a guy who's tired from being overworked, the Spider-Man suit, that's a hell of a, that's a lot of lines. That is a lot of lines. Like Daredevil is just a D and another D. Yeah. Whereas the homies like emerging from shadows a lot. And he had just also on top of that, he had just gotten used to the Marvel style with Kirby, right? Because when he did the the first Daredevil issue, he did basically he showed Stan the first two pages, and Stan was like, "That's not really exciting." And he's like, "Kirby's gonna do the layouts, and you're gonna do the finishes on it." So in fact, even in his first issue of Daredevil, it says on the first page in a caption. This this art is kind of boring. Don't worry. When we get to page three, things will liven up because that's the, the the pages where it started with Kirby. So he started drawing over Kirby, and then Kirby dropped out once he had finally gotten the rhythm, and he did all that. And then he was coming onto a book that had Dicko style, and was like, "Oh, do I got to do Dicko style?" And eventually, just did his style, and the fans really really dug it. It was also interesting because. Ramita and Stan had similar political views, so they could riff and jam on the same idea. When Lee was on the book with Ditko, Ditko was an objectivist. He he followed the teachings of Ayn Rand, and he looked at people like that protested and was counterculture. He saw them as unproductive to society, and so Ditko would draw Spider-Man swinging over a group of protesters. And he'd probably put in the margins of like, oh, they should go and work and make a change through their jobs and stuff like that. And Stan would throw away that suggestion and write, I support you guys sort of thing. Ramita was very much also of the standards of the time of the, we need to fight for change. And of course, the civil rights movement was happening at that time. And, and just seemed aware, in, and not to put too, no cap, pun intended, when he talks about his time as DC, definitely seems to have a similar kind of, I don't like bullies energy. Yeah. And even when he talks about, like the original design for Luke Cage, he's like, man, that was low-key, not cool. It was a bit much. He didn't use the Coco Chanel quote, but what he was like saying, you know, the shirt, the chains, and what it was like, literally just take off the last thing you put on. Maybe if he took off that chain around his waist that was like sort of giving like a slavery thing, like maybe that would have been, because the yellow really popped. But mm. here's the thing, like he seemed even like as an older artist, like aware of Right, he his, could go back he and look at his and, own, like, yeah. And and could objectively and not defensively kind of speak about it, mm-hmm. but also like the fact that the bones of what he helped create visually still lived on and was still part of the character often in the different iterations, whether it was in comic books or in at that point, the interview I watched was around the time the shows had already at least had their first season. He, yeah, he just seemed like a very chill nice man and didn't seem like the kind of person who wanted to really get in fights at work he just wanted to get paid for drawing stuff like, yeah exactly he like, wanted to get paid for he, drawing stuff totally yeah so he probably i can imagine a, a stanley who had already probably figured out i'm gonna be sort of the last man standing when my my bones are dusting the ground my name is still gonna be chairman emeritus on every comic book hmm. like he'd already fought to stand on that ground and I'm not saying he cultivated talented, less perhaps professionally ambitious people, but definitely I could see him having an easier time working with someone like Ramita, who was just, just seems like such a, like a chill dude. Yeah, yeah. no, totally. 
because of that thing, like they actually did get to comment on the Vietnam War and political elections and stuff in the comics because the writer and the artist were on the same page. No pun intended. That was like a big thing. Romita's Spider-Man was selling great. And Stan was, of course, not only scripting, he was the editor-in-chief and he was the art director. Well, the editor-in-chief part kept him pretty damn busy. And so he'd asked Romita to step in as the art director on a regular basis. And so Romita kind of became like the shepherd of the Marvel style and how things were. And in 73, he was officially given the title of art director and he was there all the way into the late eighties during his time drawing Spider-Man. Of course, he, as we said, he, he designed Mary Jane, but he also created the Rhino. He created the Kingpin, which was very cool about the Kingpin. What was is that Stan would just give him the name of a villain. So, okay. So next month, the villain's name is the Kingpin. He's a mobster. That's all he gave him. And so he went, Okay, let me think about mobsters in the Marvel Universe. How, do, how does Dicko draw them? How does Kirby draw them? They're always like this kind of thin guy with a pencil-thin mustache, cool leather cap, you know, sort of thing. He goes, I don't want to do any of that shit. I'm going to make him just a wall. He's going to look like this big, rotund guy. He's going to have this nice diamond cane. You can't take his, your eyes off him because he's, he's taken up the entire space. And his thought was he actually wrote in the margins and everything to Stan. He's not fat. All of that is muscle. And so like just the ideas of like, I let's do something different was always his approach. And of course the Rhino, probably one of the most visually striking Spider-Man villains of the time. And then he probably also created one of the best supporting characters from that time. That was Captain Stacy. So he had some great contributions to Spider-Man, but then as an art director, he was the designer of Punisher, Wolverine, uh, as you mentioned, Luke Cage, Bullseye, Tigra, Brother Voodoo. Some of his artistic choices, of course, stuck the time and some did not. Like Wolverine, he looked up Wolverines and was like, oh, they're like small cat-like creatures. So he made Wolverine's mask cat-like. Thankfully, that did not stick. But at the same time, when Jerry Conway was explaining to the Punisher, he gave him like just a quick sketch with a skull and crossbones on his chest. And he said, no, nah, that's not going to work. Just the skull and crossbones doesn't look right. That screams pirate. So he thought, well, we'll make it that the skull envelops the entire shirt and that the bottom of the jaw will be gone. The top of the jaw will hang down and that could actually be a spot for him to put his weapons and things like that. If you look at the early drawings of the Punisher, it wasn't just the straight skull. There was like weird little compartments there. He could have been an amazing kind of advertising person. And he did sort of say there were points in his career. Where he was like, well, I could just go make money, but yeah. I love doing this. And that's why I think him becoming the creative director, A, helped contribute to a consistent kind of visual style, but still let different artists sort of come into their own kind of POV. But also just that kind of way to take the description of a character and then come up with something that is iconic and that is copied repeated throughout different mediums over time. Like when I think about the Godfather and Kingpin and sort of like Brando's performance and even his style, like him at the wedding, it's giving Kingpin. 
And like that movie came out after, and yeah. I, I'm sure I don't you know, think the, that, that all of I'm <laughs> sure there was no bearing on yeah. it based on how yeah. all of those directors talk about Marvel stuff. But it also and also it Brando, showed, I don't think would have been like no. No, he seemed like kind of somebody who'd be interested in all things. He wanted Jorel to be a bagel when he played him. He definitely never looked at a comic and definitely didn't he look at the would have loved kid everything then. everywhere all at once then, probably. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's it's just interesting to me that it's like there's things and choices that he made in his art that are still impacting the things we consume now. Oh yeah, definitely. Like yeah. his influence on the Marvel universe is still present to this day. You can tell. Like a lot of people talk about Jack Kirby because Jack Kirby was basically the creator of the visual style of the Marvel universe. And a lot of people talk about Ditko because Spider-Man was the first breakout single star of the Marvel universe. But Ramita, his contribution was that he kind of defined like almost fine tuned the look of these characters so that they looked, I don't want to say more heroic, but just a style that could transfer better into the modern era. Whereas if you look at Kirby's work, not talking about his sequential storytelling, but talking about his actual designs, it very much feels of the time. Whereas you look at a Ramita drawing and you can still see that working almost to this day. Absolutely. His hand on the Marvel Universe was very present. Of course, he was the first artist on the Spidey comic strip from 77 to 80. You know, again, as I mentioned, he continued to do stuff throughout the decades after that here and there. Probably the one that I remember that I really enjoyed of his later stuff was he did a 10-page backup story in Web Spinner's Tales of Spider-Man number one. It was written by J.M. DeMatteis. It's a flashback story in which Peter Parker and Gwen Stacy share this date that first goes awry, but then Peter saves it, and then they end up having a lovely kiss. It's called The Kiss. And Peter is thinking back to this time. He's actually even questioning himself, things. do I see all this through rose-colored glasses because our time was so short together? But it was the perfect time. And it's actually, it's a really cute story. Like, he picks her up for a date, they go out to dinner at, like, a hangout place that he frequents with her and stuff. All their friends show up. So Mary Jane's there, Flash Thompson's there, and Harry Osborne's there. And so they're basically ruining the date. And you can tell Gwen is not pleased. She's not enjoying it. She wanted a date. She didn't want to hang out with the guys. And so Peter tells them, it's like, oh, we got to go. They hop in a cab and he takes her to Central Park and he books a horse and carriage ride and they get to spend the time together. It's a very romantic time. And then they have the kiss and everything like that. And it would be days later that... Gwen would be thrown off that bridge. And so it's this is the last happy memory he has with Gwen. And it's such a sweet story. Like, J.M.D. Matisse, of course, is a great writer. But yeah, the layouts of this, like, again, you're reading the book and you can't help but fall in love with Gwen Stacy. Like, that's how good his art is, you know? And that's where all that romance work really comes in. Because exactly. it is up until that. <laughs> it's like... Oh, I feel like this is giving Nicholas Sparks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, this is a beautiful walk and talk with a young couple in New York. Like, these are great times. What could possibly go wrong? And then, of course, something goes wrong. Definitely. Yeah. When it comes to, like, all the interviews and everything I saw, there's been one constant with Romita that I always find interesting, is that he was 
the person that more than anybody was the champion of the Marvel style. Now, for those of you who might not know, the Marvel style basically was birthed in the the 60s because Stan was the main writer on a number of books and he had a bunch of different artists drawing. You know, he had Kirby, he had Ditko, he had Romita, he had Don Heck, and all these people. They all needed a script to draw from. And so eventually he was like, okay, Jack, I I just got uh, the first five pages is uh, a fight through the Arboretum. Draw whatever, and I'll get you the rest of the story. And then sometime later, it would be, okay, the first 10 pages are this and this happens. Make sure that happens. Draw the story, and I'll get you the next 10 pages, and you can finish in the script. And then eventually he'd go, okay, this issue Spider-Man and Green Goblin fight on the Brooklyn Bridge. Go. And I'll script it later. It was burst out of the fact that Stan didn't have time to write for everybody. And when was Ramita was originally given his assignment like that by Stan, he was like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to pull this off. That's crazy. What the hell? But then he found that, as he put it, this is the way it should have always been done. It's a visual medium. So this way you lay out the story and then Stan would find the perfect places to put the balloons because... It's not just the standard of like, oh, I'm looking at all these words in the script going, knowing they have to be in my art. I can draw the art and then he can figure out where to put the words. But then that's also as much as over the years, there are debates about how much credit certain people should have for, they are telling the story. They are telling the story. And then along with the writer, yeah, like it's not that they're just drawing what they're told. No, no, I, I, t- I totally agree on that. There's no debate on that there. I'm just saying that was the thing, though, for Ramita, though, is that it suddenly gave him a freedom where he suddenly understood comics like he had never understood them before. And he would do like other artists did at the time and write some suggestions in the margins of possible dialogue to use and stuff like that. Stan, half the time, would throw those out and write whatever he wanted to write. The Marvel style was something that actually helped Ramita enjoy his time on comics more because he came from an era where nobody thought comics were cool in the adult world, where if you were a comics writer, you were considered on the same level as somebody that would, you know, draw porno books and stuff like that. You know, you were treated, you were considered the low class, like that's not real work sort of deal. And he grew in the business with guys like John Buscema who would be like, all of this is crap. We're just working for Friday. And then once Friday comes and Friday's done, I'm here for the weekend. I'll see you guys next week sort of thing. And I work to live. I don't live to work. Exactly. And it wasn't until Romita was like in his late 30s, early 40s, where he finally went, wait a second, I actually enjoy what I, I take pride in what I do. I should enjoy myself. And he goes, and once I did that, I felt great. But it was just a mentality that he grew up in. And he goes, he actually looks at the guys that came after him. Like they thought the guys that were coming in in the seventies were going to be their replacements to be like, okay, they're going to stay around. But most of them did like a run and then got out of it and went into advertising, went into this, did the move that they all threatened they were going to do, but they actually did it. And so he kind of resented that generation. And then the next generation came along in the late eighties, early nineties, and they loved comics. And because of that Ramita, whether he liked their artwork or not, he liked those artists because they had the mentality that he felt he should have always had. 
to be a lover of the business. So it seems like Ramina, as you put it before, he like he's a good guy. He had a good mentality. He seemed like one of the guys that you'd want to hang out with and you'd want to work with. Yeah. It'd be great to collaborate with. It'd be the person you'd want to, you know, bring an idea to because you know he would probably be excited for your excitement whether or not the quality of the work was top notch. Mm-hmm. Like he just seems like such a chill person to have around and an industry as volatile with all the ups and downs and when you have these big personalities duking it out over ip before that was even a term to have someone like him that's just truly delighted to get to tell these stories that's got to be a big relief yeah for the other people around them but also Probably having someone like him around more than he maybe even understood reminded the other people how lucky they were to be doing what they were doing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then, of course, his other great contribution, you know, he was co-creator on John Romita Jr. Another banger. Exactly. Like they are a legacy art family. And of course, John Romita Jr. still doing great work to this day. And uh, yeah. Yeah, Not all Nepo babies are bad. Like there's some top tier (laughs) Nepo babies out there. Go back and look at John Romita art if you can. Check out some of the early Spider-Man stuff. The Marvel Universe was a better place because of John Romita. Absolutely. And and probably The Office was a much easier place to be around with him there, too. I think it all depends on who you talk to. Thankfully, he had a long and happy life. Again, his legacy will live on in comics for years and years to come. Well, you've come to the end of another episode of Back Issue Bloodbath. Batula, where can people find you? At Antif.com. On Twitter, Hives, Battleable, Threads, TikTok, Instagram, at Obesikatawit, O-B-E-S-A-Z-A-N-T-A-V-A-T. Oh, and Spill. And here with you. And of course, you find everything I do over at geekardshow.com. Follow me on Twitter at geekard. Follow this very show on Facebook at Back Issue Bloodbath, where we post the new episode every week. Of course, the easiest way to make sure you don't miss an episode is subscribe to us on your podcasting platform of choice. And that way you won't miss one and, you know, come to you every week. Get out there. Read comics. If you want to email us, email us at geekyardshow at gmail.com. You can let us know what comics you're reading or tell us what comics you'd like us to read and talk about. This has been Back Issue Bloodbath. I've been Andrew Young. I'm Julia. Have yourself a good...